Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today I'm bringing back one of my good friends who uh, has been in Mormon studies a long time and has done some research on this topic. You will know him as John Hatch. John, can you say hello? Hello. So John is currently an editor at Signature Books. John, why don't you tell us about yourself? Tell us what Signature Books is. What do you do for them? What can people know about Signature Books? Sure. So hopefully a lot of people that listen to this know about Signature. Signature's been around a long time. Back in the day, um, maybe people don't realize in the early 80s, I would say, if you if you wanted a book on Mormon history, you had maybe Deseret Book, maybe, but they were, they were usually pretty tame, uh, University of Illinois Press, and Signature Books, and, and maybe Bookcraft in there too before, before they were purchased by Deseret Book. So Signature has been around for a while publishing on Mormon history. So yeah, like you said, I'm an editor there. We do a lot of uh, documentary history, narrative history, some fiction, some poetry. We feel like that's important too for the Mormon community. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what Signature does, and that's what I do there. Cool. And so Tom Kimball, who was is a former employee of Signature Books. He's now moved on and lives in Kirtland. He says, he told me when he first was describing you that you are the most well-read person he's ever met. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've read Harry Potter like eight times. Yeah, so good. You're totally he's, qualified. He's, he's on to something there. I don't know if that's true. I do read a lot, but you know, how much I'm, I'm getting old. So how much I retain, I don't know. But yeah. So no, then you'll know the, the answer to this. This is an important question that I wanted to know. How many wives does Harry Potter have? I can't remember. <laughs> I think, I think there's at least one, but I think he got a time turner and, and picked up some more. I don't know though. Yeah. That's, that's such a, like a John C. Bennett <laughs> move. I, I respect it. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, today we're going to talk about Lorenzo Snow. And first of all, John, why don't you tell us how you got interested in this topic? So Lorenzo Snow, I think, is is fascinating because he was so involved for so long in Mormonism and is is somewhat neglected. I mean, he's not completely neglected because he's a prophet or was a prophet and everything. But most of what people know about him, and, and this is what I've spent some of my early articles and research on him, most of what people know about him seems to be a myth. There, there are just like a handful of stories about Lorenzo Snow. He's the one that gave us the couplet. He's the one that saw Jesus in the Salt Lake Temple. He's the one that had the revelation on tithing. And a lot of what people know about him is isn't, you know, is kind of these, these stories or these, these myths that have cropped up. And I think there's a lot more to him. And I still think, you know, even though academic history has moved on from biography, I think biography still has a place. I think there's a lot that we can learn about the past and learn about the history of Mormonism through biography. So I, I don't know, I've just kind of become interested in him and his life. I think he's overall you know, likable. He's, you know, he's someone that, that I'm fascinated with. So I've just gone down this road and we'll see where it leads. And even though he was the fifth uh, president of the church prophet, depending on what you want to call him, we didn't cover him in the original hundred episodes of this series. And it's partially because there is so little information on his plural wives. I mean, he had what, nine plural wives? Is he right? probably he probably had ten, but one abandoned him. That that's up in the air, and you, and you're on the right track here. There's very little out there about his wives. I think most people 
who are interested in Mormon studies, if they know something about Lorenzo Snow's wives, they probably know that he married his last wife when she was pretty young and he was pretty old. He was in his 50s. She was 17. That's what people know. I believe she was 17. I, I should backtrack and say around 17. Uh, and people know that. They know that she became his favorite wife. But other than that, I don't think people know a lot about him. And there's very little information on his plural wives. Yeah, so we just kind of skipped over it. But it's interesting because Lorenzo Snow was a leader during this sort of transition phase of the church with plural marriage. And so hopefully we'll get into that. But why don't you sort of walk us in? And so, wait, just as a disclaimer, I usually like to try to tell these stories through the lens of the women. But because there's so little known, we're going to try to talk about them when we can. And we would encourage any listeners out there, if you have information or family histories on these women, uh, please share them in the comment section. So, Absolutely. John, walk us through it. So Snow was, uh, Snow obviously is the brother of Eliza R. Snow. She joined the church before him. He was born in 1814. His family lived in Ohio. That's where he grew up. And so that's how his family became involved in Mormonism. But Eliza... Uh, joined the church long before Lorenzo, and he didn't join until, I want to say, 1836, um, when he was about 22 years old. And then he served missions for the church. One of the most, as we get into the polygamy part of this, one of the most fascinating things I think about Lorenzo Snow was he had, he really had no first wife. Uh, we, we hear the stories about polygamy in Nauvoo, and, and a lot of the stories are about you know, men like Brigham Young or Heber C. Kimball who have their wives and have been married to these women for a while and they have to go to them and explain the the concept of plural marriage. Lorenzo Snow was a bachelor. Uh, his sister's biography of him, which we should immediately say as a disclaimer, was was written in 1884. So, so a lot of this stuff is 40 years after the fact. So I'm very suspicious of it. But uh, his sister says in her biography that he was going to remain a bachelor, that that's what he wanted to do because he wanted to be a missionary for the church and he was going to go out and convert people. The biography talks about this is biography and family record of Lorenzo Snow by Eliza R. Snow. It talks about how uh, he had a conversation with Joseph Smith. There's a lot of these stories, obviously, in Nauvoo polygamy and in Mormonism uh, that he had a he had a conversation with Joseph Smith on the banks of the Mississippi River, and Joseph Smith told him about polygamy. So it's up in the air when he married and who even he married first. There's there's different lists from the family versus what some historians have come up with. Uh, there's even some question if he might have married two women on the same day. Um, there were two cousins. There was Charlotte Squires and Harriet Squires. Some records show them as Squire, others as Squires. And he married these two cousins. Uh, he was sealed to them in the Nauvoo Temple in January. Um, but it's in, I believe, 1845. Uh, but it's possible that he was married to one of them before. There's another woman that some lists say that he was married to before them. But it's pretty clear that regardless of when this happened, he, he really had, he was never going to be a monogamist. He didn't have that first wife that he had to kind of go through this heartache with. Um, so that alone makes him pretty interesting, I think, when it comes to polygamy. He married most of these women pretty early on in Nauvoo or in winter quarters, um, and then a handful later. 
so in the 1850s, and then his last wife he married in 1871, and that was um, Minnie Jensen Snow. So I want to talk so about this for of, a minute, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm looking at the Church History Study Guide. I don't know if you saw this entry, but it talks about how Lorenzo Snow receives the principal. And a lot of what we know about Lorenzo can't, does come from his sister, right? Because as we know, she wrote all the time. And so what we know about his... At least, as, unless you have another source, but what we know about his response to plural marriage, we get from Eliza, and she talks about him being on his mission in England, and while he is gone, she, of course, is sealed to Joseph Smith, and I'm going to read what she says, okay? Okay. She says, while my brother was absent on this, his first mission to Europe, changes had taken place with me, one of eternal import, of which I was supposed to... I supposed him to be entirely ignorant. The prophet Joseph Smith had taught me the principle of plural or celestial marriage, and I was married to him for time and eternity. In consequence of the ignorance of most of the saints, as well as people of the world on this subject, it was not mentioned only privately between the few whose minds were enlightened on the subject. Not knowing how my brother would receive it, I did not feel at liberty and did not wish to assume the responsibility of instructing him in the principle of plural marriage, and either maintained silence or to his indirect questioning gave evasive answers, until I was forced by his cool and distant manner to feel that he was growing jealous of my sisterly confidence, that I could not confide in his brotherly integrity. I could not endure this. Something must be done. I informed my husband of the situation and requested him to open the subject to my brother. A favorable opportunity soon presented, and seated together on the lone bank of the Mississippi River, they had a most interesting conversation. The prophet afterwards told me that he found that my brother's mind had been previously enlightened on the subject in question, and was ready to receive whatever the spirit of revelation from God should impart. That comforter, which Jesus said should, quote, lead into all truth, had penetrated his understanding, and while in England had given him an intimation of what at this time was to many a secret— this was the result of living near the Lord and holding communion with him, end quote. So that's how Eliza describes it. And then, of course, Lorenzo writes about this conversation in his journal, where he says he was very humble to have this conversation. It was very simple. Uh, he basically tells Joseph Smith, you can do no wrong. I know that this is the law of God. And so that's how, how he explains it. So anyway, I just wanted to add that to your, your story. Right. And so, and, and this is a pretty common thing with Lorenzo Snow, again, because so much information comes from Eliza, these, you know, 40, in this case, years later, um, there's a lot of stories about him receiving these revelations or knowing about things beforehand. Uh, and we, we don't have to get all into it now, but that's, that's actually the story of the couplet, you know, the famous Lorenzo Snow couplet that, uh, you know, as God is, man once, once was, uh, or I'm sure I, have, I probably have that backwards, but you, everybody knows the couplet. And, and it talks about how he had this revealed to him and he knew this before anybody else talked about it. And it turns out that that's probably not the case. So there's a lot of stuff like that with Snow where, you know, he has these revelations when he's on his mission or before his mission uh, to England in the 1840s. You know, that's that's probably not the case here either. But, you know, he, he had this conversation, according to them, with Joseph Smith. Certainly at some point he did, you know, hear about polygamy and he did get get involved in it and, and married um several women while he was in Nauvoo. And so that's, you know, however, however it was revealed to him, however he learned about it, he clearly embraced it and was, was, uh, aggressive about it, uh, in the beginning. 
Am I to understand then that the lore surrounding him is that he somehow divines it from God? So he's like, it's his prophetic mantle to understand these things. Because I read that quote as him hearing about it on his mission. It, it would have been true that he would have heard the rumors. I don't know how you couldn't have been a Latter-day Saint and not heard the polygamy rumors, at least. They contextualize that as God revealed it to him rather than him hearing rumors. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yes, it does. And, and I think that's a big part. That's always, you know, as much as people know about Lorenzo Snow, which honestly isn't isn't a lot. And it's kind of interesting for someone who's a prophet that there isn't a lot. But as much as people know about him, yeah, I, I think that's something that comes through certainly in a lot of his biographies, the Francis Gibbons book, this kind of thing that, yes, he has these, he hears things or he has these revelations and he knows about things beforehand and then they're confirmed later by Joseph Smith um, or they're confirmed later by someone else. And I, my sense is that that is some of the mythology around his involvement in plural marriage. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Okay, so we know that he marries all these women at once. I have heard amongst Mormon historians sort of joking that he waited until he was, you know, a lot older to get married, uh, wasn't very interested in women. Do we know anything about that? We know a little bit about that. Yeah, he, so it's, it's not entirely true that he waited until he was older. So again, he was, he was a bachelor until he was uh, probably 30 um, years old. And again, the way his sister tells the story was that he wasn't going to get married because he was going to be a missionary for the church. He does marry a series of women in Nauvoo and then in winter quarters, um, two sets of cousins, the squire's cousins and then um, the Houts cousins, uh, Eleanor and uh, Mary. He marries, he marries them fairly early on. But there are a series of women. There's only one that's older than him. Uh, he does marry one woman who is older than him, and I believe that's Mary Goddard that he that that was also so early on. And then there were after he gets to Utah, there are some women that he marries uh, that he marries later, and most of those women were considerably younger than him. And so there's three in particular, three or four, I should say, in particular later on that that feed, I think, these rumors and kind of some of this stuff from from people, especially critics, but also even just from historians saying that this is what happened. And so the the last three wives, I believe, were 16 and 17. And he was for the last for two of them, he was in his mid 40s. And then for uh, uh, Minnie Jensen Snow, he was he was in his 50s. Um, and again, I believe she was 17 when he married her. And so that's where a lot of a lot of those kind of comments come from. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's helpful. Okay, so tell us more about I want to talk about how he moves into his life as president of the church. But what else do we know about him with the principal or being a plural husband? Because everything that I found, his wives are mentioned in the footnotes all the time. They talk about their children. Clearly, they had a full life together. He has children with almost all of these women. Uh, it seems like they all lived in sort of the same area. And a lot of them would have lived through some of the pivotal parts of church history. Absolutely. You're, you're exactly right. So he has children with all of the women that he marries, which is something that isn't always the case. There, there are a lot of stories of, you know, um, so for Signature, I, I edited the diaries of, of Amasa Lyman done by Scott Partridge. And, you know, uh, Amasa Lyman married a woman that 
you know, he did not have any children with. It seemed to be something where her her husband had left her or had passed away, and so he married her to support her. There is a there is a bit of that in Mormon polygamy. That was not the case with Lorenzo Snow. He had he had children with all of his wives, and they were you know. And you're correct. Like all of his wives, like so. One of the things you can find with his wives are they all have photographs in the church history library. These are people that were not entire, and and that tells us something because they weren't entirely neglected. It's not like they were just shunted aside like we might hear about with some other plural wives. He had four homes in Brigham City. One of the things that he is known for was being a big part of Brigham City, being a, a leader up there. He had four homes. One of them was called the Big House, and it had, in that big house, uh, there were three rooms or apartments, whatever you want to call them, for three of his wives. Um, Minnie Snow had her own home, and and again, she's famous as the favored wife. Um, But yeah, they all lived pretty close together. They were all a part of his life. There are letters, surviving letters to several of them, not to all of them. And he seems... To be a part of this, that there these weren't any, for want of a better term, there there don't seem to be too many pity marriages here. He seemed to uh, want to be married to to these women. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because although he's the church president, out of him and his sister, he seems to sometimes be outshined by his own sister because she was such a prolific writer. That's correct. And and there's and I should mention and and I haven't dug too far into this, but there's rumors in the in the Lorenzo Snow, you know, kind of in his history and in his family that after he died, he died in 1901. There are references to his diary, for example, in Eliza R. Snow's biography and family record. And he does have some diaries, but they're very short. They're usually rec- copies of letters that he's written to family. There's a there's an autobiography and an earlier diary. So there are rumors that someone packed up a trunk of the Lorenzo Snow family papers and took them to California and burned them, which isn't all that uncommon. Sometimes when when family members you know want when someone passes away, it wasn't all that uncommon to burn their papers. So this may have happened to a lot of Lorenzo Snow's records. Uh, there's a collection at BYU of notes that his son took, uh, Leroy, Leroy Snow, who was the son of Lorenzo and Minnie Jensen. He has these three by five index cards that he's made all these notes from the papers of Lorenzo Snow. And it does appear that some of those notes come from papers that are no longer in existence. So that might be part of why there's, you know, not that much known about Lorenzo Snow. He was also only a church president for three years. He was older when he became church president. It was in 1898. Um, So he, he was 84 at the time. And, you know, by, by then most of his, uh, many of his wives had passed away. He outlived most of them. Only the last three outlived him. So that may also be part of why there's just not that much out there about these women. So tell me about just his general disposition. What do we know about him? What is he known for? Talk about just the general idea of Lorenzo Snow. He's known for kind of these miraculous events happening around him. There's there's stories about him raising someone from the dead there's stories about him. He, he went on several missions. He went on a mission to Italy for a few years. He went, so he's, he's known before he becomes church president, he's known uh, certainly as a missionary. He went to Italy. He took a mission to the Sandwich Islands. Um, 
for a few months and did work there. There's stories about him almost drowning on the boat on the way to the Sandwich Islands and he's he's saved. So there's kind of what I think people know about him are just sort of these little anecdotes or these miraculous, you know, stories. I don't think most people could walk you through his life. Um, and beyond that, that's it. And then certainly the story about him having a vision of Jesus in the Salt Lake Temple. He's known for the tithing revelation when he, as church president, takes a tour of southern Utah uh, in in uh, 1900 and, you know, has this revelation that the solution to the church's financial problems is to emphasize the law of tithing and, you know, start collecting money to take care of that. Because the church was in, in desperate financial straits at the time. And so those are kind of the things that I, I think he is known for. Since he takes sort of, I mean, he takes one of the lead roles in church history, right? He's president of the church, and yet we hear so little about him. It seems that what I do hear, though, is that he's very loyal. He's loyal to the church leaders. He's loyal to the apostles around him. And it's interesting to me because I don't see very many men that assume the leadership roles in the church, at least in the early church, as these sort of quiet, happy-go-lucky guys. And yet Lorenzo seems to sort of fit that mold. Am I wrong about that? I think you're right. I think he is a little bit more like that, a little bit more on the quiet. You know, I don't know if I want to say he's on the quiet side, but yeah, I think that's an impression people have of him. First of all, he was very he was he was short. <laughs> he he was very thin, and I don't know that he he always had a commanding presence. That said, one thing I will say about him when it comes to polygamy that I think has been really underplayed about him was he was he was very opposed to post manifesto marriages. So for three years, when he's president of the church from 1898 to 1901, there's not at all a complete stoppage of of plural marriages being practiced in secret, but there is a considerable slowing down. And I think there's good evidence that that people like George Q. Cannon went behind his back. And I think that it's been portrayed uh, in the past in in articles and books that Lorenzo Snow was kind of walked on by by George Q. Cannon or others in pushing post-manifesto marriages. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Snow stood his ground more than people give him credit for. Uh, and I think that's something that I hope to draw out as I look more into it in the future. But I think that he really was very, well, I know he was opposed to these post-manifesto marriages, and he did try and put a considerable stop to them and slowed them down. And then they restarted after his death when, when Joseph F. Smith became uh, church president in 1901. Before we get into that, because I do want to talk about that, let's talk about he he is involved in some polygamy prosecutions. He's arrested for cohabitation. He is involved in some prosecutions under the Edmonds-Tucker Act, or sorry, the Edmonds Act. And he is put on trial for this. He he is not, I mean, it's easy for us to sort of paint him or at least me to see him as this unassuming figure, but really he's doing a lot of writing at this time. He's doing a lot of missionary work. He served on the territorial council. He was a politician for the church and then he gets in trouble for living polygamy. He was part of the underground scene. That's right. He had, um, I believe he had like a secret room under his house he was caught hiding there when federal officials came for him. They dragged him out. They arrested him. And yeah, he was sent to the state penitentiary um, for not quite a year. 
And he did uh, while he would, you know, there's a, there's a whole book on this where you can read his letters from prison uh, while he was, while he was being prosecuted, uh, yeah, prosecuted for uh, cohabitation. That's another thing though with his wives. Uh, I, it's difficult to know. I think he didn't write to any of his wives so there wouldn't be evidence of who he was married to while they were trying to to uh, prosecute him. But it's also possible that there were letters and they were destroyed. But he he really didn't write uh, to his wives. He wrote to some of his children and to officials uh, while he was while he was in prison. But he didn't really write to any of his wives. He was um, a prolific writer. He was very well read. He was um, like his sister. Uh, a good writer and something of a poet on his own, certainly not to her degree, but he did do some of that while he was, while he was in prison at the state penitentiary. Okay. Yeah. And something else that a lot of people, a lot of his critics like to bring up is that when he married most of his wives, they were teenagers, right? I think what of six, six of them were. That's correct. 18 and under. And he was, he was 31. Is that right? So it, yeah. So, uh, he was, he was 30 when he first began marrying and then he, yeah, he, you know, was in his thirties. Most of his wives were teenagers. There's one wife in particular. I'm trying to remember who it was, if it was Mary or Eleanor, I think I want to say it was, I think it was Eleanor that when Lorenzo Snow met her in 1844, this is this is a family legend. This is written down years after the fact. They claim from testimony from her. So take it with a grain of salt. But in the family, there's this there's this story that Lorenzo Snow met her when she was 14 years old, and he told her that he was going to marry her someday. The family goes to great pains to say that they didn't get married until 1848, four years later, when she was seven. She was actually 17 before her birthday when they were married. It's possible that they were married when she was younger, but it does seem like it was probably 1848, but she was 14 and the family does have this story about him marrying. He's telling her that, that he was going to marry her when she was 14 years old. So most of his wives were teenagers. And again, the famous one is, is uh, Minnie Jensen, who was 17 when they married in 1871 and by then he was he was in his 50s i think the and and like you said it's speculation and it's also early i i'm i again i feel like a real responsibility to these women to tell their stories this is i you know this is nothing new to you or your listeners but this is the catch 22 of history when we talk about women in the 19th century there's so few records in some cases and this is certainly the case with his wives. There's so few records that it can become discouraging and then we don't write about them and then it just perpetuates the problem. And I feel a responsibility to not do that in this case. There are stories in the family that that he, you know, there's an account of him returning from his mission to Italy and walking into the house. The roof is leaking. There's no food in the house and the women were miserable. And, and Eliza was with them and he turned to Eliza uh, according again to this family account, and said that you know they'd never want again. And after that, the women seemed to be better taken care of. He was one thing that I don't think people know about Lorenzo Snow. There's a collection of letters at the Church History Library to his wife Mary uh, Houts, and she was also one of the younger wives. He wrote her. They married probably in 1859. It could have been sooner. He wrote her 
truly romantic letters. So I think the women felt appreciated by Lorenzo Snow and didn't feel like, again, they were just being used. Whether or not they felt like this was creepy, that this old man is writing them these letters, I don't know. I don't know how much of the, how much they were prepared for this. But uh, let me read from one of the letters he wrote to Mary. This was in 1859. He said, when you come visit, we will have a walk over the garden at moonlight amid the gay pinks and blooming flowers. And I will amuse you with pleasant talks and some fancy stories and make you believe you are in the Garden of Eden. And you shall whisper in my ear those things I delight to know. I wish you were here with me this morning. I am alone in your nice, pleasant room, lonesome. I feel that your society would make me happy at this time. How does my pretty wife feel about it, I wonder? Oh, what nonsense I am writing. And I read this stuff and I think, oh, that's kind of sweet. And then it dawns on me. This is like a man in his mid to late 40s writing, you know, a 17 year old girl who he's he's just married and he's already married to to several other women. So it's a very complicated, strange sort of dynamic that's going on here. Right. And then you throw into that sort of the Victorian layers of letter writing and innuendo and all of that. Again, this is me speculating, but based on what we know, it would seem that the women probably had it better than other plural wives, just based on the fact that they stayed so long with him. Now, again, that is not, that's not me saying polygamy is great or whatever. It's just saying that based on this little information, it's possible that they had, and they had access to church leadership, right? That also put them in a better position than 99% of the rest of the women who practice polygamy because Lorenzo was a church leader. So he had access to resources and that uh, a lot of families did not have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I think I think you're right that they probably did feel better cared for. It's difficult to say there is one woman who probably left him. So one of his wives, um, the oldest was Mary Adeline Goddard, and she had a sister named Hannah. This comes decades later. There, there really doesn't seem to be any other evidence of this. But in the temple, 50 years after he may have married Hannah, Lorenzo Snow spoke in a meeting of the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency and talked about how he had a wife that he was sealed to. And she was, I think he used the word seduced by an editor. And, and it was someone who was, you know, uh, you know, a member of the church. And he, you know, he says that she was taken from him. She was seduced by Joseph Johnson, who, who was a newspaper man. And I don't even think he gives the name of the man. I think that's teased out from some of his comments. But, you know, she didn't seem to stay with him very long, but she was the only one that was very early on that was still in Nauvoo or just after Nauvoo. They may have been um, in winter quarters. He was actually uh, the, the leader over Mount Pisgah. So that may have been where that took place. But otherwise, the women did stay with him, you know, until until the end of their lives. And most of them lived um, long lives. Two of his wives died when they were younger, one at 24, one at 28 but most of them lived into their 60s and 70s, one um, until she was in her 80s. So um, there are a few things that I want to read that comes from BYU's Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And one of those is that when he arrives from his, he arrives home from his mission in Italy, like you brought up, his wife Charlotte had died. And he goes in and 
starts organizing a bunch of things. He's involved in a lot of the same things his sister's involved in. Um, he helps organize the Polysophical Association because they want to refine the community. And of course, he's just been in Europe all this time. And so uh, we know that early 1850s Utah, there becomes this divide, this economic divide and this class divide of the refined sort of um, English saints and maybe the immigrant saints that are coming through. And so Elder Snow is part of that. He probably sees himself like Eliza did as higher society than a lot of these people. And then uh, he goes and he colonizes Box Elder County and they they have these like adobe huts that they live in that becomes Brigham City, but it becomes really, it's this really rough way to live for a long time. And he, he is part of that. What I wanted to talk about though, in talking about his wife's ages and him being prosecuted, it seems to me that with the system of plural marriage, one thing that is different than a lot of the things happening today and, and similar with modern day plural marriage, Snow would have been gone so much or Lorenzo Snow would have been gone so much that his wives became really dependent on themselves. So when he is imprisoned in 1882 for violating the Edmonds Act, he is promised amnesty by the territorial governor if he renounces plural marriage. And the apocryphal story is that he replies, quote, I thank you, governor, but having adopted sacred and holy principles for which we have already sacrificed property, home, and life on several occasions, we do not propose at this late hour to abandon them because of the threatened danger. End quote. And so he remains in prison for 11 months, almost a year, under the mandate of the Supreme Court, which I think is a pretty big deal. I don't think people realize that he is not there providing for his family and children for 11 months. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that um, I think a lot of these women were by then, by 1882, were pretty well cared for. They were established in Brigham City, uh, and they did have a lot of support. The apocryphal story you told, I've also heard. And there is, there's in the family, there's talk that um, when, and, and this is reported in some other sources as well, that when he was released from prison and when uh, the church started, you know, following the the law a little bit more that he decided that he was only going to have um, he was going to take care of his wives but he was only going to really have a relationship with Minnie and that's you know that's part of the the family legend at the very least that he was going to be with her and that's where it comes from that that it's so well known that she was his favorite wife and that that is what happened and they actually he he fathered a child with her when he was 82 years old. They had a daughter in 1896. Um, when he was 82, she was 41 at the time. And that was, that was his last child. Uh, because though, because he was still a polygamist, he took uh, Minnie to Canada when the baby was born. This is in November. And so he took her to Canada and again, some of the family sources talk about this as if it's just a nice excursion and he's just getting away. They travel to California and then they go north to Canada. He leaves and Minnie is there by herself and the baby is born uh, when he is gone. And she has to bring this baby back to Salt Lake uh, in November in freezing weather on a sleigh. And so this is how his last child is born because he doesn't want the baby to be born in the United States uh, to, again, possibly avoid any other, you know, kind of prosecution for cohabitation. So I want to talk about that, but I just, 
It seems that Lorenzo's full of these apocryphal stories, right? He raises the dead, allegedly. He restores the life to Ella Jensen, who had been dead for two hours, it is said. He dedicates the Manti Temple, and it's said that he was, like, heavenly in the, in his persona. Is there anything else, before we start talking about him as church president and and plural marriage, are there any other stories you want to fit in there about him? Certainly the, so certainly the Salt Lake Temple vision. So Lorenzo Snow, Wilford Woodruff dies in California. He's in San Francisco and he dies uh, early September, 1898. And the story goes, the, the word comes that Wilford Woodruff has passed away. Lorenzo Snow knows that he's going to be church president and he doesn't want it. He's old He knows that the church is in just terrible financial shape. So he goes to the Salt Lake Temple. He goes to the Holy of Holies and prays. Um, I think the the language is that the bitter cup be passed from him so that he doesn't have to be church president. He receives no answer. Nothing happens. He gets up. He's leaving. And he's going through um, the hallway where the grand staircase is. If, if listeners have been through the Salt Lake Temple, this is where you go up the staircase um, from the two rooms downstairs during the temple ceremony. And you come up the staircase. In that room, uh, Lorenzo has a vision of Jesus. Jesus comes. One of the accounts says that he's standing on three feet above the ground on something that looks like it's a plate of gold. That's not in the final account. That's in an early account by his son, Leroy. And he has this vision of Jesus. And Jesus says basically that you're supposed to be the church president. The the specific language was never recorded or talked about. But that I think is, I remember going through uh, the temple for the first time with my mom and she told me that story. That's the first time I heard that story about Lorenzo Snow. And I think that's something people know about him. The other thing that I'd mentioned earlier was that he goes through this tour of Southern Utah. um, And there's a, there's, you know, I think people know this about him because there's the Windows of Heaven video that was made the church film of Lorenzo Snow having a vision as he's talking to one of the congregations. Um, if people will pay their tithing, then this drought in Southern Utah will end and there will be, you know, the windows of heaven will be opened upon the people and they will be blessed. And so that's another story about Lorenzo Snow. So I think, yeah, those, I think those are the main things, certainly that he raised uh, this woman from the dead after she'd been deceased for two hours, then the vision, and then also tithing. Okay, great. Yeah, that sets us up um, for what is to come. So let's talk about him now as church president. Lead us into what happens. And I should say that he comes at a time when uh, there's some fundamentalists. Conspiracy sounds like a hard word, but some fundamentalists believe that Wilfred Woodruff was never president of the church, that he was acting and and knew full well that he wasn't president of the church, but was acting as sort of a council to keep the lights on in the church while the authority for sealing had passed on and that Wilfred knew this and that Lorenzo knew this too. And so that's why Lorenzo makes um, an effort to do something unusual, which is when after Wilfred Woodruff's death, Lorenzo Snow organizes the first presidency almost immediately after. And the conspiracy is that's because that he knew that, you know, Wilfred Woodruff didn't actually have the right keys. Have you heard these theories before? I haven't heard that theory from fundamentalists. I think that um, the evidence for that, that that's why he regard putting aside any sort of um, spiritual or, you know, religious beliefs in that. 
the evidence that Lorenzo Snow thought that that's what he was doing is not good at all. What really happened, as, as far as I can tell, Lorenzo Snow had an interview with Wilford Woodruff um, before Wilford Woodruff passed away. I believe it was a few years before he passed away. And Woodruff spoke to him and to others and made it very clear that he wanted the first presidency organized right away. He didn't say anything about the keys. He didn't say anything about the sealing power. His concern was that there was conflict among the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. And he's right. It's it's always been that way. Obviously, we've had the, you know, there's there was the succession crisis under Joseph Smith, um, Brigham Young, assumes the leadership of the 12 in 1844, but he's not made church president until 1847, three years later. You have the same thing with John Taylor. When Brigham Young dies in 1877, John Taylor doesn't become church president until years later. And then Woodruff goes through the same thing after after John Taylor dies. And the main problem was George Q. Cannon. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't that people objected to Wilford Woodruff becoming president. Heber J. Grant and a few other apostles strongly objected to George Q. Cannon. And so you have this delay of two years um, after John Taylor's death before Wilford Woodruff becomes the president in 1889. So Woodruff has been through this over and over again for years. And he sees this conflict and he sees that there's no head of the church and that this is a real problem. What happens in the case of Lorenzo Snow, and, and sometimes the simplest explanation is the correct one, and I think there's a lot to this, the, the 12 gather um, after Wilford Woodruff passes away, the first presidencies dissolve. They go in. There's a little bit of conflict because um, Joseph F. Smith was called to the Quorum of the Twelve after Brigham Young Jr. But Brigham Young Jr. wasn't ordained and was it? Well, I've got that backwards. Brigham Young Jr., Brigham Young's son, was ordained an apostle but he wasn't put in the actual quorum of 12 apostles. This is going to be very strange to people today, the idea that you would be ordained an apostle but not be a member of the quorum of the 12. But that's what happened. Um, Joseph F. Smith was ordained an apostle and put in the quorum before Brigham Young Jr. There's this little conflict right after Wilford Woodruff dies at the first meeting of the quorum of the 12 because the quorum of the 12 sit in order of seniority and Brigham Young Jr. sits ahead of Joseph F. Smith who did not appreciate it. Um, that's resolved later, but that happens. After that, though, there's a lot of unity between the Quorum of the Twelve. They go to meet, they actually meet with Frank Cannon, uh, George Q. Cannon's son, uh, to talk about finances for the church. And they realize that this is going to be a problem because if they're going to solve the finances of the church, they need a trustee in trust. They need one person in charge. And it's Francis M. Lyman who actually speaks up and says, we really should just reorganize the First Presidency. So it's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve who has no, you know, he's not going to be a member of the First Presidency. He has to, he, he has to assume he's not going to be a member of the First Presidency. And he says, let's reorganize this. Um, and there's really good records for this that show that when Lorenzo Snow reorganized the first presidency, that it seems to be for this financial reason, it seems to be to avoid conflict. Wilford Woodruff had told other members of the Quorum of the Twelve that he just did not like this idea of this conflict and that the first presidency should be uh, reorganized. And by every available account of that meeting uh, in September 1898, uh, there was a lot of harmony and unity, and they really wanted to to organize the first presidency right away, and they did. And there's there's really good accounts for that. So nothing about these conspiracy theories that Woodruff knew that he didn't really have the sealing power. 
Okay, so um, just to add to that, I just want to point out to listeners, they should know this already, but Joseph F. Smith, after Joseph F. Smith is the president of the church after Lorenzo Snow, and while he is counselor and while he is president of the church, he is dealing with this duplicity of post-manifesto marriages all the way up until Heber J. Grant's era. Lorenzo Snow has sort of a different, he's sort of a different break in that chain for a minute. And I'm just going to talk about what Brian Hales actually says about this. I'm going to read from how he talks about Lorenzo Snow being the one man idea. And remember, up until this point, Wilford Woodruff had been, um, before he was even president of the church, he had been sanctioned by Brigham Young and John Taylor to practice plural ceilings. There were a few other men that had the keys to practice plural ceilings. And there are even some suggestions that Brian Hales brings up that um, this idea of patriarchs, stake patriarchs having the keys to do plural ceilings. So keep all of that in mind when I read uh, what Brian Hale says. He says, quote, As church president in 1899, Lorenzo Snow was adamant in his attempts to stop polygamous ceilings, perhaps in response to outside critics who had heard rumors about continued polygamous activities. He articulated, quote, I will say now before this people that the principle of plural marriage is not practiced. I have never in one single instance allowed any person to have that ceremony performed, and there are no such marriages at that time, nor has there been during the time of my presidency over this church, end quote. To the apostles in 1900, he said, quote, said that there were brethren who still seemed to have the idea that it was possible under my administration to obtain a plural wife and have her sealed to him. I requested the brethren present to correct this impression wherever they find it. I said it could not be done. And then Apostle Brigham Young Jr. recorded, quote, In city, talk with President Snow on plural marriage. He said there cannot be plural marriage solemnized in this church without his consent, and I will never give consent for this to be done since I became president of the church. God removed this privilege from the people, and until he restores it, I shall not consent to any man taking a plural wife. It is just as fair for one as it is for all to go without. The business is taken out from our hands and we cannot fight the United States. It is for them and God to settle this question. We are not in it. There is no such thing as men taking plural wives and keeping it secret. It cannot be done. Has any one of the apostles a right to seal plural wives to men by reason of former concessions made to them by the presidency? No, sir. Such right must come from me and no man shall be authorized by me to break the law of the land, end quote. And here's Brian Hales again. He says, while these statements were technically accurate, there is limited evidence that President Snow was aware that his counselors, George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith, had been specially commissioned by Wilford Woodruff to authorize plural marriages without notif- notifying President Woodruff in every case. Concerning this arrangement, President Snow reportedly stated, quote, that he would not interfere with Brother Woodruff's and Cannon's work. Historian Catherine Danes concluded, when Lorenzo Snow became president and said that he authorized no new plural marriages, couples still continued to enter polygamous relationships through local leaders who had been given blanket authority in Mexico through apostles or through counselors in the first presidency, end quote. And then one more paragraph from Brian Hills. He says, nevertheless, when President Snow learned that Anthony Ivins was performing plural marriages, he instructed him to stop. Ivans immediately obeyed, informing the Juarez Stake High Council that President Snow wanted no more plural marriages performed anywhere, including Mexico. 
Similarly, when President Snow learned that A.F. McDonald was also sealing wives to men in Mexico, he sent Apostle John Henry Smith to him with the following message, quote, No man in this earth today is authorized to exercise the keys but myself. And if A.F. McDonald or any other man is doing it and you find out that fact, you are authorized to deal with him or have the church dignitaries of that section deal with him in this fellowship. End quote. Elder Smith informed Brother McDonald, who was straightaway complied. So I want to point that out because this speaks to the confusion of the time. If Snow knows that Joseph F. Smith and Woodruff have been Joseph F. Smith and Cannon have been authorized to do this under Woodruff's thing, he certainly turns a blind eye to it and goes after other men performing it. And you can see how this would send a confusing message to the people. Yeah, I, I and I think Brian's summary is is very very good, and that's and I think you have to really stretch if you're going to argue that Lorenzo Snow was okay with post-manifesto marriages, I'm skeptical that he completely turned a blind eye to Joseph F. Smith and George Q. Cannon. And I'll say up front that I, that I have not yet done the research that certainly Catherine Danes or Brian has done into that, or even Michael Quinn, who obviously wrote early on about this. But based on what I've seen Snow and what he said, I'm skeptical I wouldn't use the term turned a blind eye. I think that he would have not been okay with it. And I wouldn't be surprised, even if there's, you know, limited or or not documentary evidence of it, that he had conversations with those men and also asked them to stop. Because at some, you know, he's, he's not just saying publicly that this isn't going on. He's saying it to the 12. He's writing letters to people. Um, He's very clear that he's not comfortable with this. I think it's a combination of him trying to protect the church. And I also wonder how much of it is that he, you know, he's just an older man and he's, he's lived his life and he's just, perhaps it's easier for him to just say enough of this and this church isn't going to do this anymore. Um, but I, I, I am skeptical of this idea that he just let Joseph, you know, and certainly George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith were very, very strong-willed people. And that's not the impression people have of Lorenzo Snow. But I do, what I know about him is it would not surprise me to learn that he wasn't okay with that either. Okay, good to know. That's uh, And that's an interesting question that we might not ever know. However, what we do know is that after his death and Joseph F. Smith takes on the mantle of president of the church, he is still authorizing these sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, plural marriages behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Joseph F. Smith is very clearly on board with this. And you see um, those that have you know really tracked post-manifesto marriages, you see a dip uh, under Lorenzo Snow and then a spike uh, as soon as Joseph F. Smith becomes president. And just as a side note, there's we've talked about the second anointings going on, and everyone knows Joseph Musser. He's one of the founding fathers of this Mormon fundamentalist movement, and he claims that in his journal that he and his first wife, Rose, receive their second anointing through President Lorenzo Snow in 1899. And the reason why that is important to realize is a lot of the men that have the second anointing feel that they are auth- and and believe that they have the keys of sealing feel that they are justified even when they are excommunicated from the LDS church officially because they have the second anointing and Musser would have received his from Lorenzo Snow. 
That's interesting. See that, and that's something that I didn't know about. And I, and I'm not nearly as familiar with the fundamentalist community as you, or probably a lot of your listeners, um, and certainly the people that have done the research into this. And I know there's a lot of that kind of of thing going on with the the sealing keys and who has the power to do this or that. Um, my sense is that Snow rejected that. Um, I I don't think that he felt like you know, uh, either a stake patriarch or any apostle could authorize this. I take him at face value when he writes and says that I am the only person uh, with the keys to do this. Awesome. Okay. So do we want to talk about um, some of the things he actively does with George Buchanan? You've already talked about that a little bit, but do you want to go into that in any more depth? He and his struggle with George Cucannon, and maybe give our listeners um, some background on. We've talked about George Cucannon quite a bit. Actually, we've talked about his wives more than him, but talk about who he was. Give us a refresher. Sure. George Cucannon was obviously an apostle, and then later a member of the First Presidency. He was. he, he was an, um, a fairly early British convert, and he just rose very quickly. He was very articulate. He, he became powerful within the church. He was a politician. He was um, a leader. And he, you know, he, he just was a very strong-willed person. And again, that's some of the concern, as I mentioned before, when, with reorganizing the first presidency. Um, he spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., lobbying Congress for the church, that kind of thing. And so he, and, and so he really was just someone who I think a lot of apostles felt was difficult to deal with because of, you know, the, the power that he had in the church and it's difficult to understate it. And so when it comes to George Q. Cannon, if he wanted something done, uh, it usually happened. And I think that that's something to keep in mind here as, as Lorenzo Snow is stepping into this role as someone uh, who was who was president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that's why he became church president in 1898, but was not a member of the First Presidency. And so he's he's stepping into this where these two men, Joseph F. Smith and George Q. Cannon, have been a part of this for a long time, and, and I think feel possibly resentful that Snow is stepping in and doing this. I'll step back and say that I won't pretend to tell you a lot about George Q. Cannon's conflicts with Lorenzo Snow. I don't know that there were a lot of other than with plural marriage. And what we do know about that is is pretty scarce um, that, you know, these conflicts that these two would have had over plural marriage. They certainly uh, happened. And again, as Hales mentioned, there's limited evidence and it is limited that uh, Joseph F. Smith and George Q. Cannon are going. Um, it, it's difficult to know whether Snow knows what's going on or not, uh, whether they're going behind his back or whether Snow is turning a blind eye. Yeah. And there's certainly like I read, a, I think it was in 1892 from April. It was in the minutes of uh, one of the meetings with the apostles. And I think Mike Quinn talks about this in extension of power. And they're talking about how uh, apostle John Henry tells everyone that even though it's two years after the official Woodruff manifesto, they should continue to practice plural marriage. And they write in the minutes that Lorenzo Snow had nothing to say about the brethren cohabitating. And you can see, I mean, let's give the guy some credit. He is a cohabitator himself. He's gone to prison for this. I imagine this would have been a very painful thing for him, not an easy thing to to have to juggle. 
Exactly. And again, as I mentioned earlier, he he was a life, you know, in terms of his married life, he was a lifelong polygamist. He had no first wife. He wasn't someone who went into this. um, He may have got I I should back up and say he may have gone into it reluctantly, but not in the same way um, that other men went into it. And certainly not um, his wives, his wives experienced it differently because of that too. Uh, and like you said, it's, it's so important to, to tell this through the lens of the women, but it's, it's difficult to do that when it comes to, to his wives and what their experience would have been. And so it's difficult to know how they felt about this as well. And we're spent, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about polygamy is just how male centric it is. There were far more women affected by this than men, um, just through the sheer numbers. And yet we always circle back to talking about the men. And here we are doing it with Lorenzo Snow. And I'm very conscious that I'm doing that. Uh, And I hope that I can break away from that as I learn more about these women and tell their stories. So like you said, let's give the guy some credit. He lived this um, for by the time by the time he became church president um, for probably at least 44 years of his life. And so it was, it was most of his, of his life that he's doing this. And so he's, he's dealing with this as well and trying to navigate it and and figure out what to do. Well, and to give you some credit, I did ask you specifically to talk about Lorenzo Snow, just because (laughs) people had asked me, they said, why didn't, why didn't you talk about him? Why didn't you talk about him? Because he was sort of involved in this conflict And he was married to so many women. And again, we would love listeners out there. It's really a joy to do what I do because so many listeners have family histories and they have letters and they have diaries that they, that they bring forward. So if you have, if you're a descendant, especially of one of these women, we would love to hear their stories. Yeah, absolutely. As far as I know, none of these women um, have left diaries that are available, certainly not at the Church History Library. I don't think I've seen any at other repositories either. There are some letters. Most of what we know about um, them come from family histories that were written decades later. The Snow family is really, really great. Uh, and and they have a, you know, they have a family organization and they've collected this stuff. The flip side of that is they are understandably protective of their ancestor and very proud of him for being president of the church. And so I think some of that um, I, I go into reading about the polygamy and the stories of the wives with a little bit of a grain of salt, because I think it's only natural that they want to portray these relationships and what was going on in a positive light and make Lorenzo Snow um, a, a noble person, which overall I think he was. But again, circling back, it's there's just no getting away from the fact that, you know, I've, I've sat there reading these letters um, and and this is a you know a married man in his in his forties or fifties writing romantic letters to seventeen year olds, and you know I I know the the explanations for that. I know that people say that well it was different back then. Um, I'm skeptical of those explanations as well. But that's what's going on here, and so it's it's difficult to get away from that. No matter how much uh, we want to portray Lorenzo Snow as you know, a really, the, the, the way he otherwise seems to be in his life, which is a, as a very thoroughly decent, you know, humble, spiritual human being. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, you know, I think that this goes to the complicated story of a lot of our Mormon ancestors. I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day. 
I grew up revering my ancestors. I grew up revering all Mormon ancestors for their sacrifices. And we were just kind of laughing and thinking like, wow, those people were nuts. I mean, they like left their homes and their families and did crazy things for their faith. If we saw them now, we would think that they were extremists. Like those are our people. And so it's, it's kind of weird to think about the different contexts that we bring to to these stories too. And I'm I'm gonna link to some of the fundamentalist conspiracies. Brian Hales tries to tackle those and Fair Mormon does. So I'm gonna I'm gonna link to that. And I just as an interesting side note, Denver Snuffer, who is leading a modern, I would say, return to fundamentalist movement, um, in the LDS church, he's he's persuading a lot of, of people to his way of thinking. He is notoriously against the practice of plural marriage, but he talks a lot about Lorenzo Snow, and I'll link to one of his uh, sermons or talks on on this. And he talks about Lorenzo Snow parsing out the idea, the difference between concubines and plural wives. And we get a lot of this rhetoric of plural wives being... Um, the the justification for polygamy being because we need to take care of widows and women that couldn't be cared for. And it seems that Lorenzo Snow helped propagate that because he talks about the difference between concubines in the Bible and plural wives is concubines are allowed as a technical fulfill, fulfillment as a, of the law to take care of all these surplus women, right? So I'll link to that. Denver, Snow's, Denver Snuffer is also talking about that. It's just an interesting side note. Yeah, and Lorenzo Snow did do that. And that actually, he talked about that at one point in the temple meeting where he also may have talked about uh, Hannah Goddard, his wife that left him. Uh, and so it's kind of done in, in the context of him talking about this woman who who left him. But it's sort of interesting because here's Lorenzo Snow using that justification of taking care of the widows. But that's certainly nothing that he practiced. <laughs> he, he married um, young women. Uh, the oldest, I think, was 33 when he married her. Uh, and she did have, um, I believe, three children from a previous marriage. And that was the only one. The rest of these women uh, were pretty young. And not in, it was not that dynamic when he married them. And, and again, especially the later ones. If, you know, what, if he's, you know, he already has, you know, five, six wives. And he, here he is um, getting others who are teenagers when he, when he is marrying them. And there's certainly no, it's not as if there's not opportunities for these, these young women to marry elsewhere. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I think that just speaks to the system, right? This is a system of plural marriage and still continues to be. And it, what's interesting to me is even though he is a polygamist, so many fundamentalists, modern day fundamentalists, do not accept him, have resentment towards him, and yet they live very similar lives. And I, I find that interesting. So is there anything else you want to say about him before I let you go? Um, I think that, I, I don't think so. I think that we've covered it. And I think, again, I would just, I, I think that he is underappreciated in his role in all of this and in perpetuating it. Um, and so I, I hope that people you know, look into it. And I do hope the main thing I want to emphasize is I, I look forward and I hope other people will as well. There are these, 
these nine, ten again, if you want to include the wife that left him, there are these nine women that have very little told about them. And these these people were an important part of, of Mormon history. And we know almost nothing about them. So I think we need to tell these these stories and tell it again through through their eyes and through their point of view, not as an appendage of this this man who became church president. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think that that's just a good reminder in the lens that we should view all of this through, too. So I appreciate that. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your snow knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we'll, can we link to your paper, your couplet paper? Yeah, for sure. Let me, uh, I, let me think if it's, on, if it's posted online. Let's get it online. I, I think I saw it twice. So Perfect. Yeah, and and then there's the Mormon Journal of Mormon History article on the uh, Temple Vision as well. That's available if people want to go see that. And while I've got you, is there anything you want to promote for for Signature? Is there any what what is what are the latest books that you guys are publishing? Oh yeah, we should definitely talk about that. So the the big things coming up are uh, Mike Quinn's third volume on the Mormon hierarchy. That's going to be wealth and corporate power. Uh, these should all be out this fall. Hopefully we're still working on them, but they're coming along really, really well. And they're going to be good. One that I hope. Wait, people... wait, 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 let's talk about that for a minute because that one is a big deal. <laughs> Everyone has been talking about this for mm-hmm. years. Tell us a little bit about this book and why it's a big deal and why people should care. Well, I mean, Mike goes into some of this uh, in his earlier books, but this is just so much more detailed. And one of my favorite parts is he spends several pages where he talks about a hypothetical church member. And he says, let's let's say that a church member is born in Utah. Let's say, you know, at the end or the early, you know, at the end of the 19th century or the early 20th century. And he walks readers through how this person could hypothetically and not just hypothetically, but probably would um, everything in their life. They could be associated with a business that's either owned by the church or has a general authority in charge of it, or at least general authority involvement. And when I say general authority, I don't mean some, you know, member of the 70 that that nobody's ever heard of. We're talking about apostles here, the prophet, the first presidency, you know, that there's there's mining there's banking, there's building, you know, transportation, anything you can think of, the church or its leaders have its fingers in, um, in the later early 20th century. And he walks people through this. And so that's, that's a big part of this. He goes through these businesses. Um, not only are the narrative chapters just incredible and very interesting, there's these appendices that are just that I think historians are going to find to be so valuable. There's one appendix. It's, it's huge. I don't know how many pages it's going to end up being, but it's every single church business um, that a general authority was involved in and what their role was and what this business was. And these are things that I, I look through this list and these are businesses that I've never heard of. And, and this is going to be a really big deal to a lot of people. I think. That's fantastic. Okay. So what other titles do you have? The one that I'm really excited for as well that I hope people are are going to snatch up are the journals of uh, Leonard Arrington. So Leonard Arrington was obviously church historian in the 1970s. What's fascinating about this um, is how often do we get this kind of juicy insider stuff in the 20th century church? And not just the 20th century church, but the second half of the 20th century. Um, 
you know, Arrington is talking about people that, that in some cases are still living. He goes through his, his uh, encounters with Thomas S. Monson, his role, for example, President Monson's role in killing the sesquicentennial history, the 16-volume history that Arrington and his staff had, had um, put together. And he goes through, and it's really just remarkable what you learn about how the church really works and what the institution is really like. And he speaks frequently uh, about, you know, the way it seems to work is if there's a general authority that's really passionate about something, that's what happens. And the others step aside. There's very, very little uh, standing up for him. He writes a lot about that, how there are, there are general authorities, there are apostles that privately thank him, but they will not say anything, either publicly or privately, when Ezra Taft Benson or Marky e. Peterson is really going against Arrington. Uh, and he's in an impossible situation. The church commissions these books, and Leonard and his staff create these books, and then they're just excoriated for them, like Story of the Latter-day Saints, for example. So anyway, there's so many good things in the Arrington Diaries. It's going to be three volumes, and I hope um, even people who have read Adventures of a Church Historian or Greg Prince's biography, there's so much in there to, to learn about and the details and to really see the inner workings of, of this institution that often I think people see today as kind of shrouded in mystery. Uh, so that's that's going to be um, a big one as well. And that one means a lot to me personally because his work is is what I credit to this podcast for. It's what helped me get an understanding of the transition of Joseph Smith to Brigham Young to the modern church. I mean, he did that. He's really a hero of Mormon studies. I mean, you can't talk about Mormon studies without talking about Arrington and what he has done for Mormon history. Exactly. We, we all kind of, to one degree or another, we trace our interest um, back to back to Leonard. And that's not to say that he was perfect. He was, you know, he, he's working for the church. One of the things that I saw that was fascinating to me, because I think it describes the impossible position that, that Leonard was in, I posted something uh, on Facebook about the difficulty that Leonard had. And one of the comments was, oh, you know, but he was, he must have been such a difficult employee, not going along with what the church wanted. And then another person commented, oh, he was such a company man. You know, this is, this is the line that he had to walk. And I think that's what comes through in the diaries. He has people criticizing him for being too Mormon. And then he has professional, uh, the professional historians criticizing him for being too Mormon. And then the church and, and uh, his fellow members criticizing him for not being Mormon enough. Yeah, um, I would. So I'm really excited about this. We we should probably do a podcast on him eventually, too, because he really does struggle within on the inside of the church, getting this history to light. And I think it's relevant to this topic, too. So, OK, any other any other titles? Um, those are those are the two that we're really focused on right now. And then, yeah, we're going to be coming out with our catalog very soon. That's going to go um, into the next lineup. And there's a lot of diverse stuff coming out. Um, a, a book of essays on Mormon encounters with death. Uh, that's going to be very, very good. The minutes the Salt Lake minutes of the School of the Prophets. That's coming out. Uh, and then some other documentary history, both from the, the 19th and 20th century uh, history. Yeah. And wait, wait for the catalog. I won't spoil anything. 
I know we're going a little bit long, but I just want you to tell everyone what you get to do at work at, like once a week as a staff. Oh, you mean the readings? Yes. Yeah. So we, we get together and, and, uh, we're trying so hard to get stuff out that this has been put on hold a little bit, but yeah, we'll get together and read, um, from some of our books and, and from other publications as well, but from our books. And part of that is just because we have a, we have a staff that does a lot of different stuff. And so I'm sitting here working on these books day in and day out, but other people aren't. And so we get to, we get to get together and, and read from, from these things. And, and if there's a book that I haven't worked on, I think people assume that I get to read it. And usually, of course, I eventually get to read it. But if, if it's something else that, that say, uh, Devery or Ron is editing, it doesn't mean that I've read it. And so I get an opportunity to read it. It's it, we're, we're pretty lucky. Well, awesome. We'll link to that site. And again, John, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.